It's the 11th of May, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, the FDA and regulatory information, footballers and injuries and arthritis, and non-adherence to our drugs. Imagine that, and guess what? It's not due to astronomical costs. At the top of the news is a study from Australia that looked at something they call gluteal tendinopathy, something we call trochanteric bursitis. And it was an interesting randomized trial that looked at which is more effective, either education and exercise or local steroid injection or taking a wait and see attitude. Turns out that at eight weeks, uh, the education and exercise was as good as anything else, actually better than everything else when it comes to pain and global scores uh, overall. And then when you look out to week 52, uh, still education and exercise looked the best. Um, although the pain uh, benefit was a little bit less, still uh, it was the, the exercise and education that seemed to shine through. So again, there may be a role for steroids and one reader on our site correctly pointed out that maybe the use of steroids might get you faster responses while education and exercise can take over. For longer responses, um, but it's interesting data on how we may manage trochanteric bursitis. Uh, there was an interesting uh, report this week about tofacitinib being used in an, in, in, in an animal model of large vessel vasculitis. Uh, it was novel uh, in that it was an animal model, and what they did show was giving tofacitinib, not surprisingly, reduced uh, JAK2 and JAK1. Uh, uh, um, Jack one and sorry, Jack two and Jack three cytokine dependent uh, signaling uh, suppressed the amount of tissue uh, memory T cells and the pathology that would normally be seen with uh, a giant cell arthritis, a large vessel vasculitis, and all of this being due to the use of of tofacitin of a Jack inhibitor uh, suggests that maybe we might see some stu uh, studies uh, using Jacks in patients with large vessel vasculitis. As you know, you know the big breakthrough in the last two years is Jacta uh, and tocilizumab, but there are also some encouraging data coming about using abatacept in that condition, and now maybe there's even more. So it's good that large vessel vasculitis is getting the attention of companies who have targeted therapies. Uh, regulatory information that, uh, comes from AbbVie who announced that it, it has submitted its BLA to the FDA for rizinkizumab, their IL-23 monoclonal antibody for use in patients with plaque psoriasis. That's going to be, I think, an, another advantage for those patients, and we'll see where that goes. The FDA um, has, I may know this, but I, I thought it was worth repeating on the website. To date, the FDA has approved nine biosimilars for use in the United States. Now, it turns out that not all of them are being marketed for one reason or another, legal battles, uh, still issues on patent, et cetera. But this includes the um, uh, Zarxio, which is the first one that was approved a few years ago. And, and then a number of them that are used in the rheumatology space. Uh, that includes the uh, Inflectra, Orelzi, Amgevita, Renflexis, Cytelzo, and Infixi. Um, but then there are two others that are outside the rheumatology space. That includes Mavasi, which is an Avastin biosimilar, and Ogrevi, which is a Herceptin biosimilar. So it's, I, I think it's, it's interesting that the numbers have grown. Um, they're going to s start to creep into the clinic. I know that the Inflectra biosimilars, of which there are three now on the market, 
have already started to make a change in a number of places. Uh, this will be interesting to, interesting to see how this progresses in the United States, especially when cost and the price of drugs is such a big issue. The FDA announced this week that they may be getting into the um, safety business by getting into the electronic health record business. As you know, the FDA has this big initiative called Sentinel, where it's trying to get real-time safety data, not just rely on uh, safety event reporting from the manufacturers of drugs, and also from the MedWatch system, the adverse event reporting system, which requires you know, voluntary reporting by patients and doctors of events that may occur, but using other measures, including social media, including being tied in with large data sets from electronic records, that this new Sentinel effort is trying to get a new perspective on safety. Well, I think the FDA has correctly made the move and, and has requested $100 million of funding in 2019 to develop an EHR initiative where they would make available an EHR, much like they have in the VA system. Uh, it would be functional and usable, but the cost of uh, admission for the clinician would be being connected to the FDA when it comes to safety events. Uh, it's not clear how this is going to really play out, but I think it's a, it's a nice idea and probably should go forward. There's a UK study that looked at ex-footballers, and that means soccer players in the UK, and what happens to them. They compared a 1,200 footballers to 4,000 controlled mage match men and showed that NEOA, um, including um, a knee replacement um, for OA, was two to three times higher in the football players compared to the general population, suggesting, of course, that the trauma, repeated trauma, is a major risk factor. Uh, and, you know, this is important when it comes to one dealing with ex-footballers and ex-athletes, that you need to be involved in those sort of traumatic uh, sports to get such injuries. Uh, and this could be important for people who are considering these kind of sports in their children and adolescents. Um, we do know that, like running, for instance, does not cause knee OA if you have a structurally normal joint and normal mechanics. If you have an abnormal joint that's been damaged or hurt or a torn meniscus or something like that, or your mechanics are not uh, right, then you get abnormal wear and tear and osteoarthritis. An interesting report comes from uh, Jeff Curtis and his coworkers that says your patients may not be filling their prescriptions for methotrexate, biologics, and tofacitinib. What they found was they actually tied up EHR records along with claims data and saw when, when an EHR recorded a prescription for these drugs that they looked within a window of time to find out if they were the drug was in fact filled at the pharmacy, that being at least a, some measure of compliance. What they found was, I, be, I believe, shocking, that 37% uh, of people prescribed methotrexate failed to initiate methotrexate within two months of receiving the prescription. Fairly good evidence that they're not taking it. Also, when they looked at tofacitinib and uh, biologics, the number was 40.6% failed to initiate therapy with those drugs within three months, suggesting there's a real issue here that we're not really addressing and, uh, and needs to be addressed. The predictors for non-adherence, at least to methotrexate, was age, um, race, region, body mass index, the number of drugs that you're on, and the number of comorbidities you may have. But it's, it'd be helpful to know who's maybe at higher risk here. It'd be helpful to know who's not filling the prescriptions. I don't know why um, pharma actually has 
data on my patients and what prescriptions they're filling when I don't really know that. Um, it's, I think it's, a, it's, it's a, something that should change. Uh, lupus is in the news with uh, some nice longitudinal data that looked at what's happened to lupus nephritis and specifically biopsy evidence of lupus nephritis over a 46 year period ending in 2016. Uh, and what they showed looking at three different eras that um, it looks like the severity of lupus is declining. What they did show that although the histologic class and the activity index did not change over this period, the chronicity index did significantly decre decrease from 1970 to, 19 to, to 2016. And when they look at the people who did not develop end-stage renal disease, obviously a failure or a bad outcome with well, lupus nephritis, it was a good number uh, um, uh, uh, in era one in the first 10 years or so, 87% in era one. It actually improved to 94% era two in the most recent era going up to 2016, 99% of patients fail to develop ESRD, end-stage renal disease. Uh, and the same was uh, seen when you looked at 20 year intervals, suggesting that again, we're doing better either at uh, diagnosing it, intervening and actually preventing the outcomes. Those that unfortunately did develop renal disease and stage renal disease included those who are male. Uh, these are risk factors, having arterial uh, hypertension, no immunosuppressive therapy, obviously a baseline creatinine increase, and a renal biopsy with evidence of a high activity and chronicity index. Lastly, there's a nice report from 60 Minutes that appeared and we wrote about it in room now. It is actually a review of the 60-minute report on the drug Akthar, as you know, ACTH. We wrote about this previously when the New York Times noted that Akthar was one of the most expensive drugs it was paying for under Medicare, where it was paying almost a half billion dollars a year for over 3,000 patients receiving it at a cost of 16,002, uh, uh, sorry, it's actually $162,000 a patient uh, per year. So what well, the problem here is that Leslie Stahl, uh, actually uh, focused on the city of Rockford, Illinois, and the mayor was complaining and noting that their uh, drug costs were skyrocketing. And they're a, 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 a municipality where they actually are self-insured and pay for their own medicines. And, but they noticed this tremendous skyrocketing of, of healthcare costs, especially prescription drugs, and noted that a lot of it came from two patients and one drug. These were two children with infantile spasms who were being treated with Akthar. And then it went on to talk about why this seems a little uh, absurd in that Akthar used to cost almost nothing uh, when it was approved. In 2001, it was $40 a vial. Now it uh, is $40,000 a vial, which is a 100,000% of an increase. So it goes on to, dis to talk about some of the history of this, some of the problems of Akthar. Um, and we end the article with a listing of the indication from the website. Um, and my, my question to the audience is, would you use this very, very, very expensive medicine, which has not been proven to work for any of these indications, really, because the drug was grandfathered in. These indications are when the drug was first FDA approved in 1952, when then the only issue was to demonstrate, demonstrate that the drug was safe, not necessarily effective. So it didn't go through the ways you get the drug approved currently. So these are grandfathered in and you could theoretically use this drug to treat the things that are listed. Lupus, multiple sclerosis, obviously infantile spasms, um, proteinuria associated with nephrotic syndrome, 
uh, dermatomyositis and polymyositis, uh, symptomatic sarcoidosis, uh, any inflammatory arthritis, and inflammatory allergic eye disease as well. Obviously, we have choices here, and there are many uh, other forms of steroid therapy that are out there, but I think that this is a problem for the manufacturer of this or the company that owns this right now, Malingrot, um, and uh, for those of us who have to consider this. Uh, is this cost-effective and reasonable therapy? I guess this will play out over time. I'll end with two quotes from uh, the website from this past week. My favorite quote from first myself is, not all symptoms merit a diagnosis or disease. Some are just evidence of human imperfection. And the second um, I heard last night from Andrew, a friend, where he's quoting Steve, the comedian Stephen Wright, who said in his very deadpan way, I'm addicted to placebos. I'd give them up, but it wouldn't make any difference. That's it for this week on Room Now. Make sure you tell your friends about the podcast. Follow us. Tune in next week for more good news in rheumatology. Take care.